My name is Marshall. I am one of the pastors here. I'll be teaching on the passage that Wayne uh, just read. I want to offer my welcome to all of those of you who are here. I hope you feel welcomed and greeted. Welcome to all those of you who are joining us online. We're so glad that you are joining us uh, via the internet, the World Wide Web. Let me pray before we look at this uh, rather famous story from the life of Jesus, the feeding of the 5,000. Let me pray. Great God, we come to a story that is familiar to many of us, strange in many ways to all of us, uh, remote, uh, and yet in some way powerful. And so God, I pray that uh, you would make this ancient story fresh and new, both to those who hear as well as to the one who speaks. Be with us, Lord Christ, for your name's sake we pray. Amen. At 11 a.m., on August 28th, 1963, 250,000 people showed up on the mall in Washington, D.C. at the steps of the Lincoln Memorial to hear Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. speak. Kind of an amazing accomplishment. There were no invitations sent out. There was no internet, no World Wide Web. There was no Twitter. There was no Instagram. There weren't even answering machines on phones. But people showed up from all over America to hear Dr. King speak. And the question is, why? Why did they show up? Simon Sinek, I think I'm saying his name that right, he uh, postulates the following. This is a little bit of a paraphrase. Some of it is a quote from him. Dr. King was not the only man in America who was a great order. He wasn't the only man in America who had suffered in a pre-civil rights America. He was not the only one that saw that there was a need for change. Some of you may have seen the article in the Chicago Magazine last week uh, based on excerpt from a book of a Northwestern professor that suggests actually that Dr. King's years here in Chicago, he was here in 1966, he spent the year here, uh, he was actually not that good at bringing about structural and systemic change, change on the ground. Sonic actually says that some of his ideas were actually bad, but... Dr. King had a gift. He didn't go around telling people about his plan or about how, he needed, how America needed to change. Dr. King went around and told people what he believed. I believe, I believe, I believe, he said. And he believed fundamentally that there are two types of laws. There are two types of laws, the laws of God and the laws of human beings. And until all the laws that are made by humans are consistent with the law of God, we will live in an unjust world. Until they're all consistent, we will live in an unjust world. Now, people believe this. Now, people who believed what he believed, they took up his cause, they made it their own, and they told other people. Some people went so far as to create structures to get more people, and the word got out, and 250,000 people showed up on that day at the right time to hear him speak. But Sinak asked the question, how many people showed up for Dr. King? The answer is zero. He says, and I quote, they showed up for themselves. It's what they believed about America that got them to travel in a bus for up to eight hours or more to stand in the sun in Washington in the middle of August. It's what they believed, and he represented it. It wasn't about black versus white. 25% of the population that day in the audience was white. Now, if you've been with us this fall, 
We have been studying the gospel of Matthew. Meeting Jesus in Matthew is what we have called this series. And today we come to the story of Jesus feeding 5,000 people in a a peculiar and particular place. A large group of people has sought Jesus out in this remote place. And something in them has compelled them to go to him. To go to a place where it turns out there was no food. And miraculously there Jesus feeds them. And as I've thought about this passage for the last 10 days or so, there's two big questions that I have about this passage. And the first is this, why did the people go? I mean, they had to cross a political boundary. They had to travel. There was not much food. It was a desolate place. Why did they go? And then secondly, why this miracle, of all the miracles in the story of Jesus' life, this is the only one that is reported In all four Gospels. In the Christian New Testament, there are four Gospels. The Gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There's all miracles in all of them. This is the only one, the only one that is in all four Gospels. Why is that so? What is so important about this miracle? And I want to suggest that the answer to both of those questions, why did the people go and why is it so important to be in all four Gospels, is the same, the same answer. And it has to do with who Jesus is. And what he presents about his kingdom. Because Jesus struck fundamental human chords in people about who we are, what we long for, what we are created for. And Jesus resonated with people in a deep way. And so what I want us to see this morning are several things about Jesus that compelled people then and still compel people today. So I got a, this is dangerous, I got a six point sermon Uh, Jesus feeds, Jesus prays, Jesus announces his kingdom, Jesus includes others, he offers himself, and he satisfies. Let's get going. First, Jesus feeds. Now, I'm going to retell this story in a moment and show how some of the connections uh, from this story relate back to the Jewish scriptures, how there's echoes of the Exodus There's echoes of the story of Elijah. There's echoes even of the story of King David. And we're going to talk about how this story points forward to Jesus' eternal kings. There's all these massive literary allusions in this story. But before any of that, I want us to see this is a story about Jesus having compassion on some people who are hungry and feeding them. At the end of the day, this is a story about Jesus feeding people who are hungry. Let's not over-spiritualize or ignore that Jesus cares about people's physical needs, their felt needs. Jesus feeds these people in compassion because they are hungry. All right? Now, two things about that. First, Jesus knows your needs and he cares about them, right? He knows your needs and he cares about them. Now, most of you are like me and you've never felt hunger in your life that was not of your own doing. You've never felt hunger in your life that's not your own doing. But you have other needs. You have other needs. Health needs, loneliness, psychological distress. Jesus knows and cares. To quote another part of the scripture, Jesus says, I have the hairs of your head counted. Jesus knows and cares our needs. But there's this also. Jesus fed hungry people. Do you feed hungry people? I love that this week our youth group took time away uh, from their very busy lives. Our youth group are high schoolers, and they went to the Evanston Food Pantry to feed people who are hungry, right? And guess what? I got the report. They loved it. 
They had a great time feeding people who were hungry. You know why? Because according to Jesus, this is in line with the universal laws that are implanted in each of our hearts. The laws of creation, because it's Jesus who said it is more blessed to give than to receive. It's more blessed to give than to receive. It's even more fun to give than receive. And our high school students experienced some of that this morning. And I know that almost everybody in the sound of my voice probably gives some amount of money to uh, helping people's physical needs, whether hunger or something else. I suppose you give your money to that. But do you actually also do some of the work with your own hands? Do you get your kids involved? And one of the best things you can do for your kids is involve them in some type of mercy and justice ministry. And this is a public service announcement for the Living Hope uh, uh, trip this weekend that uh, Chris just talked about where some of us will go down. Actually, won't, I'll be out of town. But folks will go down to help this, sit, this church in the inner city to rebuild that has been burned out. Because the first thing you've got to see is that Jesus actually feeds. He cares and he does something about it even with his own hands. But another short one. Second, Jesus in this story, he prays. He prays. He talks to God. Now, two weeks ago, we looked at John the Baptist. And in the verses that are immediately preceding this story, if you have your Bibles open, you see in John, uh, Matthew chapter 14, the verses immediately before this are the story of John the Baptist being, headed, being beheaded, executed uh, by Herod because he had spoken out against Herod's adultery. Now, John the Baptist, as we said two weeks ago, was Jesus' relative. Presumably he was Jesus' friend, and he was certainly, John the Baptist was, the person who most understood and got Jesus, as it were. And so in verse 13, when Jesus hears that John the Baptist has been beheaded, he withdraws to a desolate place. Now he's perhaps doing this to de-escalate a situation. He does cross a political border. He goes away from Herod. He's de-escalating. But this story reads to me more like a man who's getting away, who's withdrawing to think about his life, to grieve to pray, to talk to God. He withdrew to a desolate place. Now, I'm going to talk about this more in depth in January, but I, this is very worth noting. As Jesus' ministry heats up, as it kind of starts to gain some traction, as more and more things start to happen, his time alone in prayer increases, right? He more and more, as things get busier and busier, he actually withdraws more and more into prayer. Think about that. Think about that. And in January, again, we'll come back and we'll talk more about Jesus abiding, which is to say we'll talk about Jesus' spiritual life. But let's move on and talk about the kingdom that Jesus comes to announce. Because the third thing, it's not that Jesus feeds and Jesus prays. I want us to see that Jesus announces his kingdom. And this starts to get to the heart of this passage. So Jesus withdraws to a desolate place. The crowds hear that he has gone there and they go to him. They go to him. Okay, now why? They're not going for a picnic. They're not going for a Sunday school lesson. And of course, we don't really know. I mean, some people were probably curious. Other people were just following along. Many commentators and preachers suggest they were going out to start a revolution. The wilderness was where place of revolutions, where people went to start revolutions. But whatever the reason, everyone who went, they wanted something more. Jesus had done something, said something that made them feel something, that compelled them to go to him. They wanted something more from Jesus. There was something about this man and his message that made them feel alive in some way that they wanted to be with him, near him, hear his message. There's also something about the place. The word here in Greek is also translated wilderness, the word that's translated desolate. This is a wilderness place. 
And in the scriptures, the wilderness is where God reveals himself. It's where the law of God was revealed. It's also the place of exodus. In the Jewish scriptures, when Moses led the people by the hand of God out of Egypt, the exodus, it is through the wilderness that they go to the promised land. There's echoes of wilderness all over this. There's the wilderness. There's echoes echoes of the exodus. There's the wilderness. The miraculous feeding, the 12 tribes, perhaps suggesting the 12, the 12 baskets, suggesting the 12 tribes of Israel. And there are certainly overtones of revolution. They are meeting an authoritative figure in the wilderness across a political boundary. And Jesus certainly welcomed the people like a king, even if the kingdom he is about to enact looks nothing like the kingdom that people expected. So look with me at what he does, okay? Verse 15, all right? At the end of the day, verse 15, the disciples come to Jesus, and it's kind of like Jesus is this great teacher, and they're like the realists. They're kind of looking around and saying, like, there's no food. And so they come to Jesus and says, at the end of the day, these folks need something to eat. Send them away to get it, verse 15. Verse 16, it says, no, you give them something to eat. Jesus kind of pushes back on his disciples. Uh, verse 17, the disciples are like, um, we have five loaves and two fish, I mean, in the 21st century, that'd be like saying, we got a family pack of Cheetos and a pound of deli meat. (laughs) Verse 18, Jesus says, well, bring it to me. Bring it to me. And he takes the five loaves and the two fish, and it says he took it, he blessed it, he broke it, and he gave the bread to the disciples. They distribute the bread. Everyone eats, 5,000 people plus women and children, likely a crowd of over 10,000 people. And And after they've eaten they collect 12 basketfuls of leftovers, okay? That's the miracle. That's the story, okay? Feeding of 5,000 miraculously. Now, on the one hand, this is perhaps the least impressive of Jesus' miracles. He does not raise somebody from death to life. He does not allow a quadriplegic to walk again or a deaf person to hear. He is simply feeding people. It's just not that impressive compared to some of the other things he does. But it's also the least helpful miracle. Think about this. These people are hungry, but they are not starving. And they're not far away from a food store. The disciple says there's villages nearby that they can go to. It's not that helpful. But you could make the argument that this is the most important miracle, at least to the other gospel writers, because all, it's the only miracle that is in all four gospels. Why is this miracle so central to the story of Jesus. Now, several weeks ago, we talked about miracles. And I said a better way to refer to miracles, and actually the way the Bible most often referred to miracles, is signs. Actually, the word for miracle uh, really only occurs once in the New Testament. It's not even exactly the word miracle, but it's the word we use. Because the word sign is better because a sign points to something. It points to something beyond itself. And when Jesus does these things, it's a sign pointing beyond itself. But for ease of use, I'm going to take, go against my own advice of like a month ago, and I'm going to use the word miracles because it's easy, okay? Now, miracles are not to show off power. It's not like Jesus walks around and he levitates, you know, or, you know, takes a fireball and casts it at a tree or something like that, um, right? It's not to show off power. And nor are miracles, I think you heard this if you were like me in, you know, in a Sunday school type setting, that miracles were to show that Jesus was God. And that's actually not what is happening. Miracles are previews of coming attractions, Miracles are pointing forward to what the kingdom of God will be like so that we might experience it. Several weeks ago, uh, we had a date night, my wife and I, and we decided we're going to go to the movies. We hadn't been to the movies in a while, and we went to see the new James Bond movie. And I'll say, meh, yeah, you know, it's, it's all right. It, I love Bond. This wasn't his best. 
Um, but we broke our necks, made sure the babysitter was early. We broke our necks to be on time. We wanted to be there in the seat at the moment the movie was supposed to start. Why? We didn't care much about the movies. We wanted the previews, right? We love the trailers, right? It's a taste of what is good about every movie. We actually kind of go through, we decide whether we're going to see that movie or not. We do it a thumbs up or thumbs down. We love the previews. Preview of coming attraction. And that's what a miracle is. It's a preview of God's coming kingdom. But it's more than just a preview. A miracle is more than just a preview. One scholar says this, miracles are the only natural thing in the midst of a demonized world, which is to say miracles are the way things are supposed to be. Miracles are the way things are supposed to be. There's not supposed to be sickness and hunger and death and injustice and restlessness. There's supposed to be provision and satisfaction and justice. And when Jesus goes to the wilderness and these people follow him and he feeds them, he is enacting a parable. This is a preview of a coming attraction, but it's also saying this is the way things are supposed to be. This is the way things are supposed to be, and that's the way they one day will be. Because Jesus' kingdom is a kingdom of compassion. It is a kingdom of provision where people are provided for. It is a kingdom of continuity and fulfillment with what has gone before in the Jewish scriptures, but it is also a kingdom that unites people. Do you notice what the disciples do? They say, send the people away. And Jesus says, no, bring them to me. It's a kingdom that unites. It's also a kingdom of peace and of gratitude where people give thanks, and it is a kingdom where souls and bodies are satisfied. This story is repeated in all four Gospels as a key to the, Jewish, to the Jesus tradition because this is one of the clearest pictures of Jesus and his kingdom. It's a preview of coming attraction. And here's the deal, friends. Like the miracles, our lives as followers of Jesus are also supposed to be previews of the coming attraction. We're called to be previews of the coming attraction. I love the way the Apostle Paul describes it. He says, we are the aroma of Christ. That there's something about the way that we live and the way that we are, the way that we're compassionate, the way we feed people, love people. That we smell like Jesus in some small way. Not in the fullness, we're not the kingdom. But we are the aroma of Christ. Are our lives a preview of the coming attraction? Attraction. This meal is an announcement of Jesus' kingdom, and it embodies and enacts what he has come to do and bring to us. But I want you to notice, look with me at the text. I want you to notice that if you were to count the verses up here, that the bulk of the verses actually have to do with the disciples. Now, that's interesting, right? That middle section of this text is all about the disciples. Jesus' engagement with them, their resistance to him, and their eventual involvement in this miracle. Because Jesus does not just announce his kingdom, the fifth thing I want to say, or the fourth thing I want to say is that Jesus includes others in his kingdom. Let me read verse 15. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place, the day is over, send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. And the disciples are overwhelmed. Uh, they see the scarcity of resources, and they're kind of aware of what's going on, and they want everyone to go away to take care of themselves. They don't want an embarrassing situation. And they're bordering, they're bordering on the sin of the Exodus generation, the people who followed Moses out of Egypt, right? Psalm 78 tells their story. Those people, they tested God in their heart. 
They spoke against God, verse, this is Psalm 78, and they said, can God spread a table in the wilderness? Can God spread a table in the wilderness? The disciples are on the verge of that. And as much as anything in this story, Jesus wants his followers to see that God can spread a banquet in the wilderness. That God can feed his people. And I love how he involves them. Look with me at the second half of verse 19. It said, he broke the loaves and he gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them the bread to the crowds. You see, he does not have to involve them. But he does. Despite their massive inadequacies, despite their lack of faith, he gives them a part to play. Jesus involves us and the disciples. This weekend, uh, we have a, a, a house guest in uh, town. And so my wife was getting ready, cleaning the guest bathroom, and she somehow convinced our six-year-old son to participate in the cleaning of the guest bathroom, okay? She convinced him that she needed him. And this was all happening on Friday afternoon when I was writing the first draft of this sermon. And so I heard this conversation back and forth between the two of them. And she convinced him. And all of a sudden, I hear going up the stairs with a toilet brush in his hand, my son talking about the cleaning parade. The cleaning parade. He kept on saying the cleaning parade. Now, why did she want to include him? Not because it was efficient. Not because it would get the job done. She wanted him involved, and we want him involved partially because we want to understand the value of hard work. But more than that, she wanted him involved because she wants him to feel a part of our family. That being in this family means the pleasures and also the responsibilities that you are included, even in the cleaning parade. You see, involvement breeds commitment. Jesus did not need to involve his disciples, and he doesn't need to involve you and me. But he gives us the privilege of being a part of his kingdom, participating in his kingdom. We get to enact the same parables. We get to live them out when we live this kingdom, when we are the aroma of Christ. Now, one of the great things about being a pastor, and my fa I'll tell you my favorite two moments is being a pastor. My favorite moment above all is when we baptize a baby or an adult, and, and especially with a baby. I hold the baby in my arms, and I put that water on them. I put a lot of water on them. And I say, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and we sing Jesus. Those are my, that's my favorite moment as a pastor. My second favorite moment is the moment that Chris just had a moment ago when he held up his hands and he assured you of your forgiveness, that you are forgiven of your sins. But for me, this day will be at the end of this service. My favorite moment is the benediction when I ask you to stand up, to look up, and to hear that God loves you. I get to tell you at the end of this service that God loves you unconditionally. It's one of the great privileges, and I get to play a part in announcing God's kingdom of love. And you're like, well, that's not very fair. I don't get to do that. I don't get to do that. But you do. But you do participate in God's kingdom. If you are a lawyer, when you file a legal brief, you are participating in God's kingdom of justice. When you serve as a first responder, as a doctor, as a nurse, as a firefighter, you are participating in God's kingdom of goodness. When you change a dirty diaper, you're participating in God's kingdom of nurture. When, like our high school students, you serve a meal to the homeless, you're participating in God's kingdom of provision. As a student, when you study or a professor, as you do research, you're participating in God's kingdom of truth. When you make something beautiful, whether it's a painting or a piece of music, you're participating in God's kingdom of beauty. 
And when you tell a neighbor, a friend, or a family member about the goodness of God in Christ, you are participating in God's kingdom of love. The great thing about God's kingdom is we get to play a part. We get to play a part. Where is God inviting you this week to participate in his kingdom? Where is God inviting you this week to participate in his kingdom work? But God doesn't just, Jesus doesn't just include us, and this may be the most important thing about this story, and it's the fifth thing I'll say, is that Jesus in this story, he offers, he offers himself. I want you to listen to the verbs uh, when Jesus takes the bread and see if they ring a bell for you at all. It says that Jesus took the bread. It says that Jesus blessed the bread. It says that Jesus broke the bread. And it says that Jesus gave the bread, right? He took, he blessed, he broke, he gave. You actually hear those words every week in this church when we come to the Lord's table as we will in a moment. Because this recitation here in Matthew 14 actually becomes a formula that is used in every feeding miracle in the New Testament as well as every time that the Lord's Supper is recounted. Jesus takes the bread, he blesses the bread, he breaks the bread, he gives the bread. This is part of every feeding miracle in every instance of the Lord's Supper, including the ones we do here. And what does the bread symbolize? What does it point to? It points, of course, to Jesus' body. Points to Jesus' body because at the Lord's Supper, he takes the bread, he blesses the bread, he breaks the bread, and he gives the bread. And then he says, this is my body which is given for you. And on the cross, Jesus' body was broken. His life was poured out. He died for his enemies, you and me included. He died for the sins of the world. And on this desolate spot before this large crowd here in Matthew 14, Jesus is sketching in pencil what he will one day live out in 3D living technicolor when he dies on the cross for the sins of the world, his own substitutionary sacrificial death. But I want you to notice this. He doesn't just take the bread and break it and then hold up the symbol, the sign. What does he do? He gives the bread to people and the people eat the bread, which is to say it becomes a part of them. It becomes a part of them. D.A. Carson says this, an agrarian culture knew better than we, something we so easily forget who buy food in cardboard boxes, plastic containers, and tin cans. We live only because other living things die. If no other living thing dies, we do not eat. The cow and the cod, the carrots and the parsnips must die, otherwise we will. We feed on Jesus he dies or we do. You see, friends, this is a story. It's like, sketched in, it's like sketched in pencil that will be one day filled in in technicolor in 3D. This is a picture of Jesus giving of himself. This is a picture of Jesus offering himself. This is a picture of the good news of the love of God in Christ. That's what this is a picture of, pointing forward to Jesus' death on the cross for the sins of the world where he will make all things new. But there's one more thing that we can't miss, and it's the last thing I want to say, and I think it's actually what drove these people to this desolate place. And the sixth and final thing I want to say is that Jesus satisfies. Verse 20, the first part, they ate and they were satisfied. 
In the Gospel of John, Jesus goes on to teach a little bit more. Matthew does not record it. And Jesus says, I'm the bread of heaven. After he's done this, he says, I'm the bread of heaven. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. You see, the promise of Jesus' kingdom is satisfaction. Some of you know that my theological hero is a North African from 1,700, 1500 years ago named Augustine. And his most famous quote, Augustine's, is this. God made you for himself. And your heart is restless until you find your rest, your satisfaction in him. And Jesus is saying and demonstrating, I am the bread of life. I am the only one who will satisfy you. Your career will not satisfy you. Your romantic life, it will not satisfy. Your money won't satisfy. Your achievement, your vacations, and perhaps the greatest temptation for us on the North Shore, our children will not satisfy us. Only thing that will satisfy us is Jesus. Another scholar says it this way, everything the world has to offer is unsatisfying, alienating, and makes us restless. We are afflicted with dissatisfaction, boredom, anxiety, and care. We are unable to find authentic rest, true peace. But Jesus says, if you come to me, you will never hunger. I will satisfy you. And in a way that nothing else can. He's not saying you won't suffer. All the people, all those disciples, only one of them would not die a violent death. Eleven of them would die a violent death. But they died for the very reason that they believed this. That Jesus was the only way to be satisfied. And the power of using bread as an image is you keep needing it. This may be the most confusing thing to me about this miracle. Or the most perplexing thing. Because in four hours or six hours after this miracle, these people would be hungry again. It's a miracle that by definition is not final. But Jesus, by calling himself the bread of life, he is saying, you are not done with me after one encounter. You must keep coming back to me again and again and again. To the one who says, I am the bread of life and I offer forgiveness, love, my kingdom, and the satisfaction of your souls. Let me pray for us. God, we, before this text, we just pray that you would help us to see again and again that you are the satisfaction for our souls, the only thing that will finally and fully fill us. Jesus, the bread of life, in whose name we pray. Amen.